Esther chapter 4, and verse number 14. So we introduce this uh, new series for Sunday afternoons, and this will get us through uh, probably to the Christmas period, and then we'll see what we do after Christmas. But just one verse, which is kind of the key thought, the series entitled For Such a Time, and we look at verse 14 of chapter number 4, and the Word of God reads this. For if thou all together hold this thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I do ask again that you would give me strength, Lord, as I would preach your message. I ask that you would make sure that everything that needs to be said will be said. And Lord, although this is just an introduction to the series, really, before we get into the text, there are some key concepts and principles that we want to draw out and we want to hold and we want to apply. Well, we know that there's only ever one interpretation of Scripture, but there are many applications. And Lord, we want to get the interpretation correct when we look at the Word of God. We want to put it in its right place and time to who it's written to. But also, Lord, we want to learn what we need to learn from it. I absolutely believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation. So, Lord, again, would you just show us what you have us see? Help us, Lord. Encourage us, challenge us, whatever it may be. Maybe this is um, <clears throat> going to be uh, the first time for some in the book of Esther. Maybe it's a time where, for some where they've been in the book of Esther many times. But, Lord, so I just pray that wherever we're at, you would show us what you have us see. And we thank you that you, the word of God is inexhaustible. The treasures will never, ever be fully mined. There's always more to see more from you. So Lord, we help us this evening. And again, help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in keeping with the kind of theme from this morning that we are in a battle, um, I absolutely believe um, that coincidence is not a thing in God's plan and God's program. I absolutely believe that coincidence is not a thing amongst God's people when they seek his will and his way. Things happen for a reason. Things happen on time. And when we are in God's will, they are absolutely on God's time. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. I feel that we are in a season as a church where we're growing as a church. Um, we're we're uh, trying to develop some of the ministries we have. We're probably looking at some other ministries next year. Um, you know, it, it's a very positive place to be, even though at times things will go wrong, little bumps along the way. In the general scheme of things, I believe the Lord has his hand upon this church. I really do. But why? What for? For such a time as this. Such a time as this. And we're going to have a look through the book of Esther and we're going to see that the Jewish people, God's people, were on the brink of extinction. They were being threatened with mass extermination. And God was there in the midst. And when his people were faithful, God responded. He always does. 
So for us, as we go through this book, we're going to draw encouragement. We're going to um, try and think about, well, why has God got us here? And why, when we sit in a Western world that is, um, for all intents and purposes, I hate to use this phrase, post-Christian. That's a terrible phrase because it's never been Christian. It has just been heavily influenced by Christian principles. The democracy we have, the laws we have, founded on Judeo-Christian Principles. You'll see this in Western society. But it has changed and we're moving away from it. And we're in a place, like I said this morning, if you were here you would have heard it, that we are in the minority as it were. We're facing a world that is at an onslaught to those that want to hold to biblical truth and stand upon that truth. We are facing persecution. It will get stronger. It will get more fierce. We could face a time where we are up against exactly what the people of God were facing at that time. And it may not be physical extermination, but it might be a a removal of us from functioning in a society that is ever increasingly becoming one that you have to submit to the system to be able to function. Now we've dealt with that revelation. It's moving towards the end times where the Antichrist reveals himself, there's no doubt. A time where you won't be able to buy and sell unless you submit to what the state wants you to do and say. And this is happening already in the church where the state is wanting to come in and, and tell us what we can teach in Sunday school. Where the state wants to talk about conversion therapy, therapy and how that we can't, we can't say that, that there's a better way in the Lord Jesus Christ without being arrested and, and thrown into jail. So it's coming and it will come. But we're here for such a time as this. We know God. We know his promises. We know that he's true. We know that he's faithful. We know that he's ever present. We can look back into the Old Testament and see God's presence with his people. Throughout from Genesis all the way through. God is with us but he has put us here for such a time as this. I absolutely believe that. So that's why we're going to go through uh, Esther. And it is a bit of an encouragement to us and to me hopefully that God is in the midst. He's in the midst. Where his people are, God is. And we're thankful for that this evening. So, as we, as we look through it, and this is what we're going to do. This is introduction uh, this afternoon. We'll get into the text and the expository messages uh, starting from next week. But as we, 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 we unpack it a little bit, do a bit of an introductory, um, there's a couple of things I want to look at. So, number one, the context. Context is important. So, we want to look at the context of what's going on. Now the story of Esther, for those that don't know, and I know that a lot of you do, but for those that don't, the story of Esther is set in a period of exile, where the Jews have been exiled from the land. They have been taken captive originally by Babylonian, this is Judah certainly, by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was waged a war against uh, Judah. Israel had already fallen. So when I talk about uh, Israel. I talk about the United Kingdom of Israel. And originally that's how they were. With their first king Saul. Then their second king David. And then King Solomon. When King Solomon died. His two sons went in two different directions. And there was a split in the kingdom. And you have the northern kingdom. And then you have Judah. And some of the places around it. Effectively split. The northern, northern kingdom of Israel. Apostatized or, or fell away from God. Further. Than uh, Judah did. And quicker than Judah did. 
And therefore they were judged by God. And they were taken captive of the Assyrians originally, I think. And then Judah held on for a little bit longer. But Nebuchadnezzar, um, he, he kind of um, encircled Judah. He uh, encamped about it and established his control over it. And what he did was he established um, 605 BC roughly. He put in a puppet king over uh, Judah. So he took a Jew and he put him in, in, in a position of power. But he had leverage over him. This is what I mean when I say a puppet king. One that doesn't really have sovereign control. That he's being used a little. And, and this was Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah sat in that place for nine years. After nine years Zedekiah uh, revolted against Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't take that very well. And ultimately he came. He surrounded Jerusalem 587 BC. Where the residents of Jerusalem are sick and starving. He breached the walls. Tore the temple to the ground. Burned the city. And took the survivors in chains to Babylon. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. We'll, we'll read about it. 2 Kings chapter 5. So this is history. Um, factual history. <clears throat> Of what's happening. Because you know. The Bible is not a, a book of human history. It doesn't record everything. It's a book of religious history. But it's history is accurate. Unlike any other religious text. You, you will look at all the other religious texts. That claim to be uh, divine. Or inspired or whatever. And they are full of flaws and holes. Geographical differences. The word of God. Accurate. Never been proved. Unaccurate. In fact, people have tried to say it. It's said to say that Jericho didn't exist. That it's in the Bible, but it's just a, a fabrication until they dug it up. Mm-hmm. Said that Israel never had a king over them. They weren't, they weren't organized. They were just a band of nomads in the desert. They never had a King David. Until they found pottery inscribed to who? King David. This is an accurate book. And we go into 2 Kings, chapter 25, verse number 1. It says, it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts round about it, and the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gates between the two walls, which is about the king's garden. So again, ran. Now the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, were against the city round about it. And the king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chaldees, the Babylonians, pursued after the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his armies were scattered for him. So he took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah and they gave judgment upon him and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before their eyes they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon you can read on in your own time about that but he's bound in brass brass is a picture of judgment in the scripture that's what the Jewish mind would see when they talk about brass as a, as a picture of judgment just as gold is this picture of divinity brass is a picture of judgment you'll see brass repeated as you read down those passages because this is a judgment against uh, Judah against Zedekiah who had uh, compromised who when we read about Zedekiah he sought uh, not the things of the Lord but went to other gods and this is God judging his people 
The Babylonian rule over Judah continued for the next five decades uh, until Cyrus, who was the king of the Medes and Persian alliance, so the Persian Empire that came after the Babylonian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Great World Empire, overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, the Persian Empire. And Cyrus uh, comes in, takes control of uh, Babylon. He, he attacks it, um, if you know the story, diverts the Euphrates River uh, to move his armies under the, the wall. And uh, he takes over, really, in a kind of whirlwind uh, takeover. And then what happens is that there's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if you remember from Ezra, when we looked at Ezra, we, we, we looked at this prophecy. So let's read about it. If you turn to 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, and verse number 22. So this is a fulfillment of the prophecy given by Isaiah many years before. It's that before Cyrus was ever on the planet, before Cyrus was ever in rule. In Isaiah 44, 28. And we read 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, uh, spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom to put it in writing. Thus saith the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God, excuse me, of heaven given to me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So Jeremiah had prophesied that the captivity would only last, last a certain time. And in fulfillment to that, we find that King Cyrus is allowed and sending the, the Jews back into the land. It's a fulfillment also, as I said, of Isaiah 44, 28, which reads, Thus saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. This prophecy was given many years before Cyrus was ever, ever aware of it. I would say there's a good indication that Daniel, who's around at this time, has told this king about this prophecy. And this has helped uh, him fulfill this prophecy. So he's made aware of it, blown away by it, no doubt. Once the favour of the God of heaven, why wouldn't you? If your name's prophesied all those years ago, and to look great and to look magnanimous, he does it and he sends the people back. So they go back and... uh, Many of the Jews, as we learned in Ezra, did go back, but not all of them did. So there's three returns to Jerusalem. The first one is by Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel uh, goes back, and some of them go, but some of them stay. Some of them chose to stay where they were in the Babylonians, because really when the Persians come in, they treat those uh, prisoners of war. So what the Babylonians would come in and do is they would come and take them uh, out of the land and they would put them and populate them in. But they would still treat them as, as slaves, really. But the means in the Persians did it differently. They were more lenient to those alien people from the other nations. So many of them were prospering under the Medes and the Persians' rules. So there wasn't the influx to go back to Jerusalem. And remember, if you remember from Israel, it's a hard journey. It's a difficult journey. And there were foes that were waiting in Jerusalem. So not all of them went. So Zerubbabel, the first return from exile to Jerusalem. Then... 80 or so years later, there's a second group go back with, with Ezra. 
They go back under Ezra's leadership and then shortly after there's another group that go back by Nehemiah. The book of Esther is planted between the first return by Zerubbabel and the second return by Ezra. If you remember from Ezra studies, it's between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7 in the book of Ezra. These events take place. And Esther, her family and others had decided to remain behind rather than make the journey. So the book of Esther deals with them. It's centered around Zusa. This is the capital of the Medan Persian Empire. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai are really this picture of Israel in exile. So these events take place um, in that period. So some people have returned to Jerusalem. The rest of the Jews have stayed in this kind of 80-year period between the first return and the second return. And this is where we pick up with uh, Esther. So that's the context. Now, we want to look at the cast. Hopefully this works. I tell you, I don't know. There we go. The cast. So, five principal characters in this book. Firstly, we've got King uh, Azareus, or Xerxes. Uh, Azareus was the ruler of the Persian Empire from 486 BC to 465 uh, BC. Uh, the name Azareus represents the Hebrew translation, uh, <laughs> transliteration of his name. Uh, the Xerxes bit, you'll see in other commentaries, are to deal with the Greek uh, pronunciation of his name. Um, his grandfather was Cyrus the Great. His father was Darius I. He comes from an, an elusive uh, family of, of rulers within the Mede and the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was divided into 20 provinces, if you like, uh, Satraps, we'll see, it referred to, certainly in Daniel, it talks about that. Um, but the king was in, was in ultimate control. It was in a day where the king was sovereign. And I mean that in every single sense of the word. That what he said went. There was no, um, you know, <clears throat> like our king today. Take him or leave him, he's not doing much for me. Whereas this king um, ruled with a rod of, of iron, absolutely. So we're going to be introduced to him. We're all going to be introduced to Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai is, is named 58 times in the book, so he's a prominent figure. Uh, seven times in the book he's identified as a Jew, so he, he, he is proudly wearing his identity. One of the things that the Babylonians would do is that whenever they took their captives, they would take their captives um, from the nations they were and they would give them new names. They would give them Babylonian names to try and remove their identity. To try and uh, make them forget who they were. Now again, spiritual application. We live in a world that wants to do that. Remember, and we, we suffer from identity crisis. The world, the flesh, the devil wants to tell us that we're someone we're not. But we are a child of God. That's our identity in him. So uh, Mordecai is associated with being a Jew. And we'll see that he is proudly Jewish. He knows who he is. Even when he's in a foreign land. And there's a lesson for us in the life of Mordecai. And we'll see it. His ancestor Kish. This is Mordecai's ancestor Kish. Was taken to uh, Babylon. In the second deportation. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24. Um, But again. You know. Remained to stay there. He didn't go back with that 
uh, initial uh, batch of those that went back to uh, Jerusalem, Missouri, Mordecai stayed. What was his reasons for staying? We, we don't know. One day, if you're a believer, you can ask him. You can say, do you know why did you stay? He'll have his reasons, and I wonder what they are. But what I do know is that when he stayed, he made a difference. He didn't hide away from who he was. Um, We're going to find that eventually he gets himself to hold an official position uh, in the government. It says he sat at the king's gate. That really points us to the fact that um, he is uh, given a a position within the the province regime. So, you know, he has a position of importance and he does use it. And we're going to see that as a theme throughout the book of Esther. If God puts you in a position uh, where you you can use that position, use it. Use it. You never know what God will do with it. So we're introduced to the king, Azarias. We're introduced to Mordecai. Then, of course, third character, Esther. Esther's Mordecai's cousin, um, his adopted daughter, really. The Persian name Esther means star. Hebrew name Hadasha means myrtle. And uh, the myrtle tree actually bears a flower that looks like a star. So again, in Judaism, uh, the name was so important. More so than, 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 you know, we have names. And I'm sure you have somebody, somebody somewhere in, the, in our congregation will have somewhere a cup or a, a what do you call them? What? Placemat. <laughs> a placemat or something or a key ring that has your name and then what it means. Anybody have one of them? No. no. Right, let me rephrase it. Anybody ever had one of them? Yes, good. There's two people. Anybody seen one of them before? Yes, that's more people. Right, good, we're in. Doesn't really mean much, does it? It doesn't really. It's, you know. In Judaism, it does. When you look through scripture and you see the names that are given, they carry, they carry stuff. That's what it makes it all the worse when the Babylonians come in and try and take that name. So this uh, star, this myrtle star, uh, Esther, is, is kind of one of the key. Her, Mordecai, and uh, some of the more negative characters are, are, are the, the uh, prime figures in that. She's a beautiful woman. How do I know that? She's taken as part of the king's harem. You know, the king's sovereign. He wants all the the best women. And uh, she's uh, chosen. Why? She's a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman. A.B. Simpson said, God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. Now, Esther is certainly one of them. Um, she's definitely a, a hero, no doubt about it, in what she does. And God uses her. He puts her in a place where she can do something and she does it. She has the courage. You know, talking about a strong soldier, courage, commitment, consistency. She does it. And even this kind of um, negative context where she's being paraded and, and pulled in as one of the king's uh, harem. God is able to work through that and use that for his good and for his glory. And through this, she's been divinely prepared for such a time as what she was about to face or what God's people were about to face. God's never surprised by circumstances. 
You know, I remember Pastor Moore used to say a lot that, does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? And it's true, he's never surprised. Well, you may be surprised. We may be taken aback and flabbergasted by some of the events that fall our way. But God isn't. God isn't. He had Joseph ready in Egypt. Ezekiel and Daniel in Babylon. He had Nehemiah in uh, Susa. He had Ezra there. And he has Esther ready for her ministry to the Jews. To save God's people from extermination. Not just one. Not just a couple of families, a couple of tribes, a couple of areas. Mass extermination. Mass extermination. What would have happened if the Jewish people had been wiped out at this point? No land from the tribe of Judah. No Messiah. No Jesus. But God had a plan and he had a purpose. So we're introduced to Esther. Esther. Then Haman. Haman. And uh, Haman is the kind of antichrist uh, figure in this. He's the, he's the bad guy. If this is a pantomime. He's the guy whenever he comes out on stage, everybody boos. He's referred to as that wicked Haman. If you're in, into your uh, Gematra and your numerology, wicked Haman, 666, it adds up to, but there you go. Um, he's an agite. What does that mean? It means that he could come from a a place known as Agag. But this is what I think it means. And more likely it means, and the commentators are with me on this, that he's a descendant from Agag, king of the Amalekites. So for those of you who know who the Amalekites are, you'll have connected the dots of why he hates the Jewish people so much. Why he has this vengeance against them. The story goes back to uh, the time of Israel's exodus. That's where it really... It starts, actually it starts a little bit before that, but let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 25. So back in Deuteronomy chapter So here we, we're going to get into it where um, Moses is going to remind the people of what the Amalekites did when they'd come out of Egypt. Um, Joshua is about to go and, and fight with them. And, and this is what um, uh, Moses says. If you pick up in verse 17 there. It says, remember what Amalek, so he's the head of the Amalekites, did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee by the way, smote the him most of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when they was faint and weary, and he feared not God. So what happens is they make an attack from behind. Israel's marching in, in the desert, the Exodus, you know, up to three million people that are moving through the desert. And this, uh, 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 the Malachites come from behind and attack the weak, those that are uh, faint. Verse 19, therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God has given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord hath given thee for an inheritance to possess it. Thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. So here Moses inspired 
Say this to the people. You remember what they did to you. And there's a time coming where you have to wipe them out. You have to wipe them out. You'd almost think, remember when we fast forward here, that God knew what would happen all those years later from Haman, who was an Amalekite. So if we turn to 1 Samuel, chapter number 15, and this will piece together this little journey about these Amalekites. And uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 15, and verse number 1. So here Saul is sent to destroy uh, the Amalekites. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid in wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. This is taking us back to Deuteronomy that we read that Moses had reminded the people. Verse 3, Now go and smite him. Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, both slay man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in the telling, 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. So here Saul, first king of Israel, responds to what Samuel the prophet says to him. He is responding to what Moses said to the people all those years ago when they come out of Egypt. That these people were a problem. And they needed to be dealt with. And the, the, the solution was radical. Now, we look at that and go, that's a bit bloody. But God knew what he was doing. And the spiritual application for us today because Agag and the Amalekites are a picture of sin. And we find that Saul, rather than kill them all, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuge that they destroyed uh, utterly. So, what happens is Saul doesn't do it. He doesn't deal with it. If it's a picture of sin, he doesn't deal with it radically. Radical means to get to the very root of. You know, you want to deal with a weed in your garden. Keep taking the top off it. What's going to happen? It's going to go back. It's going to go back. It's going to go back. You have to get radical with it. Pull it up by the roots. Get it all out of there. And then it's gone. And that's what God's doing. He's saying to the people, this is what's going to happen. These people are going to be a thorn in your side. They're not going to be happy until you're exterminated. Therefore, you have to go on the front foot. You have to wipe them out. You have to deal with them in a radical way. And Saul doesn't do it. He fails. Because of this, he loses his commission. He loses his place as the king. Look at verse 11. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried all night unto the Lord. And if you read through that in your own time, you'll see there's this uh, wonderful little encounter when Samuel goes to encounter Saul and to deal with him. And Saul's saying to him, no, no, I've killed them all. And in the background, there's sheep making noises and everything. And he's trying to hide the noise, and he's confronted. He's confronted. 
Samuel says this to him, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. Saul's been rejected. Why? Because he's failed to carry out that assignment that the Lord has given him. He spared Agai of the Amalekites. He was the king. And he should have dealt with him. And he didn't. And because he rebelled against God's word, God uh, deals with him. And actually, uh, when you follow on in Saul's life, when he is uh, killed on the battlefield and he is um, killed by another, he's wounded and another one comes along and and, uh, spears him. And that person goes to King David and and says that he's killed Saul and, and King David ultimately kills him. That person was an Amalekite. Amalekite. So you see this pattern of the Amalekites and their hatred and what's going on between them and God. And actually you can take it all the way back. You can go to Genesis 36, 12. You see that Amalek, the Amalekites were descended of Esau. It goes back to Jacob and Esau. And the fallout there within the families. So Haman has a hatred for the Jews historically because he is an Amalekite. And we're in a position in Esther where we find, and we're going to see as the weeks transpire, that it is Haman that leads the charge and manages to get the king to agree to exterminate the Jews on a national level. All of them. Now you'd almost think God knew that was going to happen when he said, through the word of Moses, you have to deal with those people. When he said through the king that was chosen by Samuel, anointed, that Saul was to go and wipe them out, every single one of them. And he didn't. And that's a picture for sin. And I'm talking about these sins that are right before us, these Goliaths, these, these besetting sins that we know, not the, just the normal day-to-day where we fall, but you know the, the big ones, the secret drug addictions, the secret uh, alcohol problems, the adultery, whatever it may be. You've got to deal with that. Cut it out. Get it out by the roots. Don't tolerate it. Because if you tolerate it, even one little bit of it, it will grow again. And it will manifest itself in a way that will destroy you. Destroy you. Book of Judges is all about that. There's good moves in the Book of Judges. There's good moves in the times of the kings where the kings got back to the word of God, but they didn't go all the way. And what happened? Left, festering and molding. The idolater system just rose up again, stronger, more fiercer, because it hadn't been dealt with radically. So Haman's in there, this picture of the flesh. That's our fourth character. And I did say there was five. And our fifth character is God. It's God. Now, if you know the book of Esther, you'll know that the name of God is not mentioned once. It's not there. Martin Luther was absolutely against this book. This is what he said. I am so hostile to this book, the book of Maccabees, and to Esther, that I would wish that they did not exist at all. For they Judaize too greatly and have too much heathen-ish impropriety. The book of James is another New Testament Luther had no time for. He called it an epistle of straw that it should be thrown in the fire. And the book of James is a very Jewish distinction to it. 
Esther is fiercely nationalistic. And it is the story of the Jews, God's people. But we understand in this church that God isn't finished with Israel. That they are God's people. That we have been grafted into the place of privilege by God, under the grace of God, to enter into the service that was given to Israel first and foremost. That they um, forewent because of their rebellion. But that one day all Israel shall be saved. And that one day they will see their Messiah for who he is. But Luther and others just couldn't say God's name is not mentioned. But because God's name is not mentioned, it does not mean that God is not there. Because God is much more than a name. The names of God are just uh, character aspects of God. Let Let me put it like that. There are many names for God. But yet there is no real name for God. Not like we have. That defines us. Who we are completely. God is so many things. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is Jehovah Nisei. That I said this morning. He is El Elyon. The Most High One. These are all names for God. That describe his characteristics. Jehovah. uh, Tetragamagon. I am that I am. The self-existent one. There is not a name or a label. That can truly contain God. So just because we don't see his name. Doesn't mean that he's not there. Just when we look in society. And we see and we look at it. And go my goodness the wickedness. The name of God's not there. God is still moving. For he is sovereign. And he is everywhere. Omnipotent. All powerful. Omniscient. All knowing. Omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-presence. It's God. God. So that's the context. That's the characters. And then finally, we'll finish off with the concepts. Spurgeon, I've quoted Spurgeon twice today. I don't usually quote Spurgeon because I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not one of his biggest fans. I just think he's overquoted. But anyway, I've quoted him twice today. He said this, there, are no, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see divine sovereignty at play. That God is always in control. That God is always in charge. And that God will not let anything happen to his Faithful people on this scale in terms of the battle that we face that he does not allow or does not send. If he allows it, it's for our good to show us, shape us, mold us and change us. We've talked about the exile and how that the uh, Jews were taken into Babylon and through the exile process. What you will find that off the back of that, the Forms of idolatry that were happening previously to the exile did not appear in Jerusalem again. Now, were the people perfect? No. Did they have idols of their own imagination? Yes. But this um, structured, organized worship of false gods was wiped out through that exile period. God was doing something with his people. And as we've seen, he brought them back according to his time and his hand as he leads them back into the land. We looked at that through Ezra. So even though we confess that there is such mystery in the sovereignty of God, that at times we cannot work out, we have to remember, as Isaiah wrote, 
That our thoughts are not his thoughts. God is far above and beyond us. And sometimes in his sovereignty we cannot see what's going on. But God is there. The book of Esther, in the midst of this pagan empire, we're going to see God is in control. So what I want to do is I want to leave you with two concepts that override this book. And these are two concepts that I want us to hold on to. This is part of being a strong soldier. Yes, we have to be courageous. Yes, we have to be consistent. Yes, we have to be committed. But we also have to hold on to who God is and what he's doing. So here's our our first uh, thought. Here's our first thought, hopefully. Um, Never works. Number one. Never doubt the presence of God. The book of Esther, his name is not there, but he's there. And there are times in our lives where, if we're honest, we feel like the name isn't there. Here's what I want to say to you, church. Never doubt the presence of God. He's always there. He's always there. In the waters of around Greenland, you'll find countless icebergs. Some are little, some are uh, gigantic. If you observe them carefully, you'll notice that sometimes the small ones uh, and the small ice flows move in one direction, where the big ones move in another. And people look at that and go, well, why is, is the big ones, are they going one way and then the small ones seem to be going the other way? The explanation that the scientists have given is simple. What they say is that the surface winds drive the little ones, whereas the huge masses of ice are carried along by the deep under, under uh, ocean currents because that's where the mass of their body is. So when we're faced with trials and tragedies, it's helpful to see our lives as being pulled and pushed by two forces. Surface winds and ocean currents. The winds represent everything changeable, unpredictable and distressing. But operating simultaneously, unknowns to us and at times we cannot see that uh, below is moving these deep ocean currents representing the hand of God, the will of God and the purposes of God. That we can see what's happening on the surface. The winds are coming and blowing and we know what direction they're coming from. They know what direction they're taking us and sometimes we're just in the midst of it. But always, always God is working underneath at a level that we may never see in this life. You may never know what God is doing and why he's doing it now. But one day when you get the glory, you'll see what God has done and you'll praise his name for it. God is always moving. The winds of judgment are blowing out there. The winds of pain, the winds of distress, the winds of blasphemy, the winds of difficulty. Winds of hardship and suffering and sickness are blowing all around us. But God's sovereign purposes are moving us along, whether we see it or not. God is in control. And as we move through the book of Esther, we're going to see that God's name might not be there, but his presence is there. Never doubt the presence of God. Next one. Never downplay the power of one. 
Never doubt the presence of God. Never downplay the power of one. The difference that you can make, the change that you can make, the effect that you can have if you take a stand, like we talked about this morning, if you're a good soldier for Christ, never downplay the power of one. Oh, you know, what do we talk about, Adino? 800 to 1 odds. The one. The one. Oh, I'm not going to make a difference. If you have God with you, you will. We submit and surrender to him. Oh no. There's only a few of us. We're not going to have an impact. and The world's too far gone. Too far gone for God? Surely not. Surely the God of the Old Testament, the God of the early church, the God of the revivals of the past is still our God today, is he not? We may be small in number against the world that's ever increasingly growing. The devil is adding to his ranks generation after generation after generation. But listen, for such a time as this, never doubt the presence of God. Never downplay the power of one. When we read the book of Esther, we're going to see these ones. Mordecai stands up. That leads Esther to stand up. That leads to what? The salvation of a nation. Let's not underestimate the potential there is when one person stands for the Lord and the butterfly effect, the ripple effect that it can have. You know, I think about this at times just with our testimonies, mine and Claire's, and you know where it starts. Starts with one, one affects another, and then you have you know generations affected. You have families affected. You know people that I've led to the Lord, people that I've trained in ministry. They're now leading others to the Lord across the world. Actually, it starts with one, and then God gives the increase. Does He not? So God is there. His hand is upon us for such a time as this. God is always moving. He's always there. He moves all the scenes which he's behind and he's behind every scene. Sometimes we won't see it. But if we're faithful to God then truly, I believe, we'll see why we're here for such a time as this. Who are you going to lead to salvation? Who are you going to encourage in the Lord? Your stand is going to affect somebody else. What is it? Who is it? Why is it? You and God know that. But what I do know for us as a church collectively, I believe that we are put together as people of all different backgrounds for such a time as this. What is the time? Today is the day of salvation. It's a time to share the gospel, the good news. To let people know that they may not see God in society, but God is there. They may not see God in their hearts, but know that God is there waiting for them to come unto him. That we have a God... Who is always there. 
that we're to never doubt his presence and we're to never downplay the power of one. And as we spend our time in the book of Esther over the next coming weeks, I hope that we're going to be encouraged, we're going to be challenged, we're going to be uplifted and we're going to see what God will have us to do for our time such as this. Let's pray.